Hello and welcome to the Mindful Family Business. My name is Russ Hayworth and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Martin Stepek. In each episode, we will be exploring and learning about the ancient teachings of mindfulness and how we can apply these to situations within our family business. We are also offering access to a program that takes what we speak about and applies it to your own family business. More details of that at the end of the show. But for now, take a breath, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm excited about what we're going to cover in today's show. Um, We're looking at the topic of right livelihood, um, which is, uh, I think is going to be fascinating. I don't know an awful lot about it before we speak, so I'm I'm keen to to learn myself. Um, As we typically do on these shows, could could we start with a a kind of a summary of where we are and, and what we've covered um, so far for, for listeners it might, might have been a while since they um, last listened or it might be their first um, experience of, of what we're doing here sure so we're looking at how family businesses can be most effective and harmonious through the lens of mindfulness and this is the original deep version of mindfulness it's an ancient traditions steeped in the teachings of the Buddha. And he taught essentially a two-part summary or eight memoir, if you like, to, to his own teachings. And the first part was the Four Noble Truths. And that's a bad translation. Um, it's four truths that ennoble you, four truths that make you a better person. And the first one was a recognition that suffering is inevitable in life. You get sickness, death, etc., troubles. Second is that this stems largely, or a large part of it stems from inside you, not really the external things that happen, but how you react and respond. And that's to do with what he called a thirst. We have a thirst for certain things. We want peace, we want wealth, we want this, we want that. And we also don't want certain things that we dislike. So it's likes and dislikes. And if you can manage these. The third truth is, if you can manage these mentally, you can attain clarity of thought, calmness, and peace of mind. And then the fourth truth is, you have to work to do this. There's a path that you can work at to get you to this more peaceful, liberated state of mind. And that path then itself has eight aspects. The first aspect is right understanding, which is basically what I've just described, the four, the four truths. The second part is intention or thought. What is your intention in, a, in every moment? What's your thought in every moment? Because the thought then affects your communication, which is the night one, next one, which is right speech. And this right that I mentioned is not about right and wrong. It's about skill. It's about wise or thoughtful speech, thoughtful action, which is the next one. So your speech, your thinking affects your speech, what you say, what you write. It also affects the decisions you make, the activities you do, 
and the activities you choose not to do. So that's right activity, right action. And then now we're at the stage of saying the next one is right livelihood, which is an astonishing thing. We're talking about 400, 500 BC, and this teacher is saying you need to be skillful as an employee. You need to be skillful in your career. You need to be thoughtful and considerate and wise as an employer. And this is the area we're looking at um, first um, this afternoon. Mm. And before we get into the sort of the detail around that, one of the things that's struck me about the way in which the Buddha's teachings have been captured in this way about the the four noble truths and, and the eightfold path, we're able to record a conversation between the two of us that summarizes some of this in perhaps forty minutes, a half an hour, an hour, however long our conversations are. But actually, they're disseminating down years of his teaching, right? In in terms of the depth of thought and consideration that went into creating the teachings, it wasn't that he had a quick thought and went, "Oh, I know that seems a good idea." It it was actually properly thought out, and he worked on it from from his own aspect, right? In in terms of to then be able to teach it. Yeah, this is from personal experience and insight. He was a remarkable person. You know, take away all the religious attributes and aspects that followed. This was a, a young man in his 30s um, who saw suffering and saw the insights of suffering from a position of comparative luxury or prince. He was like a tribal head or a, a, you know, a prince. And he wanted to find out what could you do about this? How could you minimize suffering in life and he experimented on himself he basically went to all the teachers and tried everything that they did in his, in his area found that some things worked so he kind of incorporated aspects of that but nothing was working fully and so in a sort of desperation or a sort of last straw he said I'm just going to sit with a begging bowl in front of me so I don't have to worry about food I'm just going to sit and observe my mind for as long as it takes till I find out how on earth do you manage this volatile thing called the human mind. And the story goes that after six days of all sorts of rubbish going on in his mind, he understood that with mindfulness, what we now call mindfulness, with the ability to calmly observe what's going on yourself, inside yourself, you can separate out emotions, feelings, moods, bad memories, sort of worries about the future from a calmer, clearer mind. And you can allow the calmer, clearer mind to control your life more wisely while all this junk is going on in your mind. And so that was almost like self-experimenting to get a psychological breakthrough. So it was a combination of a scientist and a philosopher in that regard, um, an astonishing person. And I wish we in the West knew more about him as a person and what he teaches, hence what we're doing just now. Yeah, and I think to, to be able to have the, the strength of mind or the, the faith in himself that 
when the the garbage starts to come out at, at day six, whatever, it is, but to, to persist through that rather than go at day four, okay, I'm, I'm going nowhere with this. Or you know, most people say I'm, I'm talking about. I know it's a different subject altogether, but you try and get your kids to do something where they concentrate on something for more than twenty minutes, and it's really difficult. That the human mind is is kind of it's its own worst enemy in some respects because it's so active all the time and to have the discipline and the uh, i guess was it a faith i don't know but to have that kind of ability to to persist through what the mind must have been doing to him is it again is incredible yeah and it's interesting you use that word faith in the original buddhist teachings the teachings that he personally taught he contrasted faith with confidence and he said it's when you faith is a sort of blind belief a belief without necessarily having um, any evidence and what he said was try something and if it works then you have confidence that it works and that's like a, a sort of personal inner confidence that is like faith but you've got reasons for having the faith because you've tried this and it works and that's what he advised everybody. He was, he was brilliantly open about things. He would say to people he was teaching, don't believe what I say. Try it, and if it works, do it. You know, and, it's, and he had the confidence to know that it worked for him, so it should work for others. And he was, he was wonderful in that regard. I mean, really tremendous. Mm. Yeah, very much so. And obviously the... What we're here talking about um, today is right livelihood. And you, again, spoke about the insight 500 BC to be talking about livelihood in, in that sense as well is, is incredible given, um, you know, where we are today. What what are kind of the some of the specifics around right livelihood? Because it would be perhaps easy to read that and go, well, I just need to find the right job. But I'm assuming it means more than just having the right job or a good job, however you define good? Yeah, I think one of the, again, the beauties of him as a teacher was he was very realistic. So what he said was try not to have a job or a type of work that harms other people. Try not to have a job that harms other things animals, now we would say the environment, um, biodiversity. And he also said, try not to have a job that hurts yourself. So it's about self-care as well. You know, he had this sort of universal view that everything that lives is precious and you should try to protect it, to try to nurture it. So skillful livelihood, right livelihood, would not only be not harming it would actually try and nurture. So if you think of things like the obvious ones, like being a doctor or being a nurse, you're you're trying to save people, but you're also trying to make them healthier. So it's the one's the prevention of negative and the other is the nurturing of positive. And he then expounded this by saying, it's not always possible to have a livelihood that doesn't harm. And he used the example of slaughterhouses. 
and, and butchers. And what he said to them was, if in your daily job you have to hurt, then in your spare time, try to help so that you're balancing it back up. You're, you're trying to balance the books of your own life, if you like. Um, and I just think, you know, if, if every person in the planet looked at their career with that in mind, then we would be in a very different space just now. And he also includes, obviously, employers, and I'll come to that um, in, in due course, um, about what is right livelihood if you are the boss. You know, what is right leadership? What is right management? What is right ownership? And again, before before we get to that, I wonder that there's a lot in um, the kind of, I, I say press, it's more sort of marketing um, efforts currently around purpose-driven and purpose-led individuals um, and values-led organizations. And d- does that translate into what we would see as a, the, a right livelihood? Again, we're not saying right as in the moral judgment of right or wrong. It's, it's about, as you say, skillful and um, not harming and helping if possible. Does that align with things like purpose and values-led organisations? Is that too simple to, to look at yeah, it that way? I think at the surface level, absolutely the same thing. I think at a deeper level, we don't go that deep. We we almost take up. You know, we learn something from the media or we learn something from the latest New York Times bestseller about purpose-driven, you know, or being a disruptive, you know. And, and a lot of it's jargon and a lot of it's just glib marketing. And your ethics and your, your way of life is so much potentially deeper than that. And it's it requires a great degree of thought and a constant degree of reflection and self-questioning as to is what I'm doing actually doing any good? Is what I'm doing actually for that altruistic or greater purpose? Or is it really me just putting a a sort of whitewash onto um, me just doing my normal work? And I think this especially pertains to... um, bigger businesses where where there's a short-term result and you have to keep protect the brand. Um, and so you're constantly looking to present yourself as, you know, wonderful and purpose-driven and caring and doing everything that this year's fashion says is a good thing. Um, and but where's where's the depth? And I think what the Buddha was teaching in Right Livelihood is where are you at heart? Where are you in the depth of your personality and your character and your core in terms of not harming, in terms of wishing not to harm, and in terms of wanting to nurture um, something that's... And this takes a lot of work. It's... It's so easy just to, you know, I could rhyme off, you could rhyme off, Russ, you know, 
let's do a mission statement, boom, 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 boom. Let's do a vision statement, boom, 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 boom. And if you compared maybe 100 of the FTSE 500 sort of vision statements and mission statements, the same words would all be there. Everything would be nice and glitzy. You could almost change them all over and there would be no real difference. But where is the reality in this? Where is the depth that's coming through there? And you were talking earlier about um, sort of the Buddha's focus to be able to look through all these, so all the junk that's going through his mind. That helps you get a real sense of what matters and a real sense of your purpose and a real sense of what life is actually all about. And when I had to train to be a teacher of mindfulness, I had to spend two weeks on my own in in a hut, basically, um, with nothing, with no books, no pen, no paper, no music, just looking at the junk. And that was basically the training that he had done um, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. And that, I'm not pretending I'm anything like him, but that gives you a sense of depth. You understand that there is a whole stream of unconscious impetuses, impulses, desires, egotism running in your mind. And you have to get that kind of out of the way to get a real sense of what deep purpose is and, and what your, your, what's actually driving your life and what should be. And uh, there's a couple of things that, that would be great to delve into. Maybe we do a separate conversation about your experience of, of those two weeks. I'd, I'd be fascinated mm. to, to delve into that. What well, One quick comment on that is I'm assuming when you went into it, you knew that it was going to be two weeks rather than not knowing that, like when it was going to um, potentially end, which I can't. I still don't expect that that's a particularly easy time. Two weeks is an awful long time to be sat there. But again, that confidence came from other people having been through it and having that experience that the Buddha, when when he did it, didn't have that because it, it was only he, 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 the first time somebody had probably done that. There, there might have been others that um, tried it but not, not as successfully as he did. Um, for, for that period of time so, so that's one element the, the other is in relation to where we talk about the use of the purpose and values led and, and you're absolutely right in terms of the kind of core sort of re repetitive words that crop up in statements and I've worked in organizations where they've had these words on the wall and nobody really pays much attention to it but they are apparently the values of the business and it's just they're there for the for the sake of a, a tick in a box to say we've got a value statement but, but i'm not kind of saying that family businesses are perfect in this sense but they do in my experience have more of an opportunity to explore that together as a family if they want to go through that process of exploring what values are, are true to them you can then start discussing about well how do we behave in a way that replicates those values so it are family businesses better place to be able to pursue right livelihood i know there are obviously good and bad um family businesses out there but again i think the opportunity that that can exist if families want to go through this and do the work are probably more so than in a big corporate where you've got 
you know, next quarter's results are the most important thing to measure the success of the business by? I think it's not so much one being easier and one being more challenging. It's just the different way you would do it. I think that the big corporates, you know, it would be very easy for the managing directors to get around the board and let's let's all agree, tick box, tick box, tick box, tick box. So it'd be quick and simple, but it would be shallow. I think what family businesses have the opportunity to do is to actually really look in each other's eyes and say, what, what do we exist to do? You know, why have we got this, especially if you're not first generation? Um, my dad, when he set up the business, it was straightforward purpose. He says, I've been a refugee. I have lost everything. I need to get an income. I need to also have the stability to know that this is me that's in control of this because I know what it's like not to be in control of your destiny. So I think the first generation is almost always like that. It's, it's you know your purpose because you set it up. It's your baby. The next generation take it on and the next generation and subsequent generations are saying, almost like, what are we here for? We've got this. We love it. We like it. But we didn't set this up. And is it enough to say, well, we want to continue it? Is that a strong enough purpose? Just continue something because your mum and dad set it up or your granny set it up? You know, and so it's, it's useful to ask those questions. Um, and sometimes the answers can be surprising because you haven't really looked at it in that depth. But I think it's not always as easy in a family business either. You know, people can have different purposes. People can have different views in it. And also people can have different views about whether discussing purpose is a, is a good use of time in the first place. I mean, one of the things that I feel strongly about, but different people can take a different perspective, I think if your purpose is strong and deep enough and you live that in your family business, then the purpose is clear. The purpose is exemplified every day. It's just not worded. It's just not verbalised in, in, in form, formal statements. Um, but there was absolutely no doubt that, again, you know, if you look back in my family business, you know, we didn't have a mission statement, but people knew we cared for those people. People knew that customers mattered to us because... We helped customers through difficult issues. We helped our employees through difficult issues. And so if the purpose was about keeping the community of employees together and taking care of uh, you know, our responsibility to our customers and our suppliers, then the words weren't needed. The customers would tell people what we were, their values, our purpose, the staff would tell us, the suppliers would tell us, and they said it all the time. Said you walk into this, you know, this 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 business, and you feel cared for. And this is somebody trying to sell, you know, somebody from Sharp trying to sell his televisions, you know. And and, and I think that's what matters most. Now, it can help when your organisation is to a certain size to actually put this down in words, in the same way as the Buddhist teachings eventually had to be put down in words because it was growing so big and there's a danger of misunderstanding. Um, but at core, 
it should always be, it should be felt. And the purpose and the values should be resonating from the people that own and run the business. Mm. And so in terms of how, again, in, in you're saying about it's not always easy to communicate that because even in the same family, people would have different views on, say, right, um, <clears throat> on their purpose and what the business is for and, and why they own it. But if we follow the the eightfold path that we've been covering over uh, these recordings, a lot of that, if people are thinking in that way and are thinking in the, in a right way and communicating in a right way, um, again in terms of what the, the Buddha teaches as right being skillful, that can help have those conversations if there is a difference of opinion on certain things it can help to facilitate those conversations if people are approaching it in a mindful sense uh, because otherwise it could it can either sit under the surface and ne never come out or comes out at a particular tension point or if you don't know how to skillfully deal with it it can create um, apparent tension and, and sort of rifts in the family as well is, is that fair yeah absolutely and i think this is one of the beauties of the Buddha's perspective on mindfulness and and the the way that these truths, these paths link together. If your thinking is clear, if you are aware of your own prejudices, your own views that are different from other people's views, and you take that into account in terms of any communication or any thing that you're trying to discuss and reach agreement on and you're viewing it from a position of caring for the other people as well, all of which is developed through mindfulness, then that's right thinking, that's skillful thinking. From skillful thinking comes good, clear and considerate communication. And if everybody around the table have got those skills, they will explain and express their different views clearly so the differences can be seen but also thoughtfully so that nobody's being insulted or shouted at because there's a difference and then mindfulness allows the mind to be the minds of the people discussing to be clear enough to be able to think creatively about solutions to differences and various solutions can be thought through and then this is where right livelihood comes in again is say you don't want to harm you don't you want to do as much good as you can do in this discussion that we're having about our purpose or values and so you are compassionate towards each of the other people that are that are exploding this and so you're more likely to come out, out with an answer and also to have give and take in terms of reaching a solution um, rather than sort of bashing against each other, um, as so often happens when there's differences of opinion, and certainly in a family business, because you've already got prejudices about each other. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean it in a literal sense. You prejudge each other because you've known them all your life, and they're big sister, and they're wee cousin. 
you know, and, and so you've got different views and you're putting attributes about them into what they're saying that may not be accurate. So mindfulness helps you see this and and step away from some of the junk that you've accumulated in your thinking and so that the conversations can be more aligned and more likely to lead to good results. Mm. And you mentioned that your family business didn't have a, a mission statement, but it was it was inherent in your characters, in, in the relationships you had, not just with each other, but with your employees and with your customer base. So what we're not saying is that families have to go through this process of, of understanding um, mindfulness and the, the Four Noble Truths and the Alpha Path in order to be positively influencing those around them. I, I guess what we're saying is this is a, another lens to look at it through and, and to perhaps help people if they don't have a, a clarity on what they feel their purpose is by understanding the Four Noble Truths and, and working on themselves in that way, it might help give them some clarity on what that is if it isn't something that comes naturally. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. If you, I mean, and I've been through this for a long, long time. So when I finished university, what I learned from a law degree was I didn't want to be a lawyer, um, which is four years to, to learn nothing, basically. Um, and then I worked my way around the world for four years trying to stave off being fixed into one role in life until I got clarity about what I wanted to do. And even after four years, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I had no purpose. So I joined the family business, which is a terrible reason for joining the family business. But I was good at it, and, and it took me a long time to understand my own personal purpose. Now, people require time to gain clarity about purpose if they don't feel that they've got it just now. And it requires patience and it requires the ability to think clearly and it requires creativity. Now, these are all mental traits. And unfortunately, not everybody's given all the good mental traits naturally at birth. And so sometimes you have to develop these. And what I've found with mindfulness as a practice, as a set of practices, does is it helps shape your mind to have qualities that better enable you to live your life. Um, and it's it's wonderfully helpful in terms of gaining clarity. So you start to realize, no, I'm I'm doing this, but I don't want to do this with my life. And I would like to do that with my life. And maybe I can't get straight there, but maybe within the family business context, maybe I can start to do a bit more of that and a bit less of that. And I can move slowly and skillfully towards fulfilling what I think is my purpose or what I think the family business's purpose is. Um, and there's no rush. So there's clear thinking, there's calm, calm approach to it. Um, so it's essentially mindfulness ultimately is a tool to optimise the quality of your mind. And it's a lifelong process because you never get mm. your mind to be perfect. It just gets better over time. Yeah. And again, what we've spoken about on previous um 
in, in our previous conversations about this is the fact that the, there can be a misconception that mindfulness is the breathing element, but that's a practice designed to help you with the work that's been done under uh, the depth of conversation we're talking about now. Not, not to say that simply focusing on the breath and, and using that to perhaps if, you, if you're feeling anxious or, or need to, 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 and that helps you to calm down, that that's um, not useful. But in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of being mindful is understanding the Four Noble Truths and the, the Eightfold Path and applying that over time. Like you say, you've been doing it 23 plus years, something along those lines. Um, and... It, now you you're still doing it it's not something where you get a badge at the end to say you're you're now mindful you don't need to do this anymore is it it's you it's something that needs to be constantly um worked on and, and practiced yeah the, the better comparison is with fitness and going to the gym or running um if you stop doing it because you're fit then you'll just become unfit you know, it's, it's that simple. In other words, you lapse back into what it was you were trying to get out of. And it's the same with the mind. If you don't keep practicing the training of mindfulness, then you will revert back to having a prejudiced, automatic, reactionary mind. Um, so you're trying to keep that at bay and push it further and further away. And at the same time, the training helps nurture better qualities of mind but those better qualities of mind will not be self-sustaining. You need to keep feeding them. You need to keep building them up. And um, it's hard work. I mean, when you can stop doing mindfulness is when you're dead. You know, it's, you know, you don't need to do it anymore after that. But un until then, um, th for me, this is, this is lifelong. Um, and because I know what my mind produces, and my mind produces largely garbage. And I have to notice the garbage to let go of it so that I don't introduce it into the world, like into my family, my home life, my work life, but instead put better things into my family, my home life, my working life. And that requires effort, which is what mm. we'll be discussing next episode, right effort. Yeah. And something else you mentioned um, around your own experience is joining the family business because you didn't know what your purpose was. And, and so it was, and I can imagine there's lots of people listening where that scenario is they've, they've joined the family business because they have. It may not have been as deliberate and as um, fulfilling their purpose as they, they might have wanted it to be um <clears throat> what advice would you give to people who are in that position you mentioned about skillfully perhaps moving to more of what you're um looking to to do with your life by, by understanding what the right livelihood and, and what your purpose might be but, but if somebody's feeling trapped or sort of miserable about the role that they have within the family business and don't see uh, a way out. How, how would you suggest that they approach that? I think the first thing is do it slowly. Don't leap to changes. Stay calm about it. Think about it. 
develop your mind so that you can start to get a sense of what you might like to do. Then when you're in that position, if the family culture is conducive to it, to then start to have a conversation with family members about your lack of happiness or fulfilment perhaps in a certain role. Um, the general response to that would be from a sympathetic family would be maybe there's something else in the family business you could do and that sometimes might satisfy but often it might not because it's the whole being in the family business that may be the sticking block and you want your freedom from the family business often so that you can reinvigorate the relationships with family that are being stymied because you're all working together. Um, for some people, being in the family business is wonderfully fulfilling um, and nurturing. For other people, it really feels like you're being boxed in when you want to be something else in your life, um, even if you don't know what that is. Then I'd say take little steps you know, if you're leaving the family business or maybe cutting it down to three days a week and start to do something else with the other days and start to test out what might suit you. I mean, I had to do this over a longish period of time while I was still in the family business and then after the family business um, sort of went into, into administration. Um, and I had my thoughts on what I wanted to do for a long, long time. But I had to go from it being ideas to being reality. And it took a few years, you know, so I was interested and I'd been writing for a long time, so professionally being published in, in poetry and writing about mindfulness, um, getting involved in environmental political things, um, teaching mindfulness. Um, you, you, you can't just jump into all these things, but I could slowly moved in that direction but it's important to also be fair to the rest of your family to be fair to the family business to be fair to your own family and so this requires skillful thinking it also requires calmness and it may take a few years and be prepared for that and be comfortable with that um, moving towards a, a, a more personal favoured purpose um, as a process and don't leap into it. Also, 10 years later, you might find that you want another purpose, a different purpose, because you change and the world changes and you need to be, this is where one of the beauties of, of these teachings is that you need to be fluid and flexible because the world is ever changing and that you're ever changing and don't try and sort of get bogged down in things. Yeah, I was going to mention when, when you're saying about being patient, but part of the danger of doing it too quickly is actually not really identifying what the the core issue is. If you think it's, oh, it's because I'm unhappy with this bit and I'm going to go and do this and sort it out and, you know, just, just take some irreversible action in some way, um, then it, it can come back and bite you if, if it's not what the real reason was and it doesn't solve that or help to, to solve that problem so I think taking time over it is um it is important and it kind of it, it contradicts where we seem to be in in terms of again world events at the moment causing what 
what people are calling the big resignation, where people are just quitting their jobs and thinking that the grass is going to be greener on the other side. Um, it's not always the case, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, the mind's a funny thing. It, it tries to force you to make big decisions. It tries to force you to react immediately and without thought. And that's essentially, especially so when you're unhappy. You're unhappy and it says, do this, do that. Oh, I've had enough. I'm at the end of my tether. And people just, you know, flounce out the room, sort of quit the business. I quit. You know, it's almost like a stereotype, you know, um, drama series, you know, and people just, I've had enough, I'm going. And that's that's like that. It's, But it, it rarely works out for you. Um, it's better to just pause and try and get a wee bit of distance between you and your feelings, you and your reactions, and start to think from everyone's point of view, and this is where mindfulness helps enormously in terms of thinking um, and decision-making, think what is right for everyone here including me and you think if I do that then that could be hurt if I do that then that could be hurt if I do this then yeah nobody's ever going to be completely satisfied but it's the best solution all else being equal and you have a right to do what you want to do with your life especially when it comes to feeling fulfilled satisfied sense of purpose um, but there are ways of getting there that are more conducive to family and wider harmony than certain other ways and we've seen horrific situations in family businesses where families just completely implode because somebody wasn't happy with a scenario in the business it wasn't their purpose and they wanted to do something else and, and the family crumble and next generations don't speak to each other cousins as kids don't get to meet each other and it's really tragic so we need to be it doesn't mean we don't we can't rock the boat but we have to be careful how we rock it and we rock it as gently as possible while stepping out if that needs to be the case yeah it comes back to that word skillful again doesn't it in terms of of approaching it and but by having gone through the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to, to reach the way in which you perhaps skillfully communicate or um, skillfully think about something, it, it's only likely to help rather than hinder um, any of those um, conversations. Yeah, and I think the important thing in, in what you said there is that the skill comes as a result of doing all the practices of doing the path and it's it's hard work but you get good result just in the same way as I imagine somebody studying medicine and studying surgery eventually becomes a really skilled surgeon they don't have to think oh what do you do now at the, during the operation what's coming out during the operation is the skilled quality and the thoughtfulness that has been building for years inside the person. And I think that's, one of, to me, the great beauty of this work, of this work, this self-life work of mindfulness, is that 
that you more and more get the results and things emerge as skillful. Things emerge in a situation as being thoughtful and being considerate and having thought that through. It's not like you stop and think, oh, right, I need to write down all the possibilities here. You know, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from 90% done. You just need to explore the last 10% that pertains to the particular situation. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit. I watched um, Karate Kid at the weekend and the, the muscle memory that Mr. Miyagi creates uh, yeah. is fire, sort of wax on, wax off. And it's like, what am I doing Absolutely. this for? And it's, it's creating that muscle memory so that when the situation arises where you need it, it's there and it can be utilised. Actually, the Karate Kid, um, for all it's, you know, it could be a bit twee, it's a really great metaphor, and that's what it was about. obviously about. It was about the old, wise Zen masters who's saying there are different ways to learn than the way you think. You know, I'll teach you this. It, it is mindfulness is pure repetition. And if you don't let it go, you think after two minutes, this is so boring. You know, this is so boring. I've done this again. I'm just noticing my breath. And all you need to do is let go of the idea that it's boring and get back on. That's your wax on, wax off. You're fed up waxing on, wax off. Can I not do something else? No, you wax on and you wax off. And the mind builds. The mind builds in the right direction. Um, and it's it's not easy work. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> no, the results absolutely. are beautiful. That's the only way you can say yeah. And again, it's, it's part of the reason why it's called mindfulness practices for, for a start. And, and also, um, I know we're going to cover this in the, the next conversation we have, but kind of as a preview to that is is right effort. And again, I'm assuming there's sort of um, uh, it, it has synergies with what we talked about already um, today. Yeah, it's that idea of effort is building up the I think the commitment, first of all, the commitment that you are going to do this, just in the same way as the commitment to a diet, the commitment to the gym, if your commitment is stronger, you're more likely to keep going. Then there's the moment-by-moment effort to try to notice. Try to notice your frame of mind. You're going into a meeting and it's been a bad morning, and if you go in there with a bad morning's mood in the meeting, you are not applying yourself properly, professionally, to that meeting. So you need the effort to see the mood you're in, and then you need the effort to deal with the mood you're in so that you are no longer that person that goes into that meeting. You are a person that is up for being constructive in that meeting. Um, And, yes, it's moment by moment, and you keep screwing up. You keep forgetting to do it then it's effort getting back on. Um, and it becomes a game. It's a very serious game, but it's, it, it can be very, it can be really fun. You learn an awful lot about humanity through seeing your own garbage. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And I look forward to uh, having a deeper conversation on, on right effort um, next time round. Um, but before we close off, is there anything else that, that you would want to um, convey or summarise in, in terms of, right livelihood have we have we captured what we needed to for for this uh, conversation i think for the most part but i just happened i've got one of the great books on um 
mindfulness it's called what the buddha taught um fabulous book i'd recommend it to anyone but he this guy was a buddhist um monk in sri lanka in the 1950s and he summarized the buddhist teachings and it goes through everything we've we're teaching which is, but in terms of what he was talking about right livelihood and he was talking about employers and he said work should be assigned now this is 500 bc remember Work should be assigned according to ability and capacity. Adequate wages should be paid. Medical needs should be provided. Occasional donations or bonuses should be granted. And he's saying this in 500 BC, that that is good livelihood as an employer. The employee in their turn should be diligent and not lazy, honest, obedient and not cheap and they should be earnest in their work. You know what I mean? I, I'm just constantly amazed that somebody two and a half thousand years ago could lay that down, you know? That could almost be an agreement between an employer's group and a trade union. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and what strikes me about it as well is, uh, and obviously I know that there's people who have taken on his teachings over time, but it seems that it's becoming more and more apparent now of the importance of it. And it's two and a half thousand years later, rather than having been embedded in society since um, it was taught, which, again, I think is uh, perhaps a conversation for another day. But uh, in, in terms of that, that my one and, uh, other thought on it is perhaps he was a time traveller. <laughs> And uh, he, he thought, oh, no, I'll go back there and tell them that this is this is a good point to have an intervention in human history for it all to turn out better. Um, we've managed to um, not do a great job in, in, <laughs> in taking on the learnings until now, but yeah, um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, thank you, Martin. Thank you again for your for your time and insights um, on that. Uh, again, fascinating for for me learning as we go through this. Uh, and I'm sure the, the audience um, agree as well. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Ross. It is our firm belief that it is healthy for your business, your family as a whole, and each individual involved to learn how to develop a fresh, more objective perspective of the situation each of you is in so that clearer aims, hopes and visions can be explored together in a positive, respectful and constructive manner. Martin and I have created the Mindful Family Business Programme to help you with this. If you'd like to find out more about this, please head to familybusinesspartnership.com forward slash mindful for more information. Or you can email me, russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. We really hope you've enjoyed the show and if you have, please feel free to share it with your family and you can even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.